0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Police reform takes commitment from both the community and law enforcement.
1: As a member of law enforcement, I'm aware of the origins of my institution and the pain associated with it for communities, right? I'm also Black, so of course I know the effects of it. I receive it when I'm not in that uniform.
0: Today, two officers share first-person stories about policing.
2: I have found that doesn't matter what community I go into, white, Black, Latino, uh, affluent, a hood, people just want you to treat them fairly and they want you to treat them with respect and talk to them like they're a human being just like you.
0: And I'm joined by Joe Erickson, producer and host of Systemic, CPR's new podcast about the people working on police reform from the outside and within.
3: Colorado Public Radio is able to bring you what you need in a news and music service because of generous financial support from members. A special thank you to everyone who gave during the recent membership drive. Together, you strengthened the financial backbone of CPR and, through your support, helped plant trees around the state. Thank you for your gift, and thank you for making an extra impact in Colorado.
4: This
0: is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. The murder of George Floyd continues to resonate across the country and here in Colorado one year later. A group tasked with overhauling how Denver's police, jails, and courts operate released more than 100 recommendations for change in the past week. Cities like Aurora and Colorado Springs are under review by community task forces. But what will it take to create real change? That's one of the issues systemic explores. It's a new podcast from CPR News focused on police reform from the inside and the outside. Producer and host Joe Erickson joins me now. Hi, Joe. Hi, Avery. We're going to listen to the premiere episode in just a moment. But first, what did you set out to learn as you began to work on systemic?
5: This is a really difficult question because I don't feel like I came in with anything and came out with anything. I wanted to explore people's um, stories um, who are deeply affected by this issue. So, It's a national conversation, everyone has ideas about it, but I wanted to get to the stories and the voices of people who are really affected and who are embedded in this story. So um, I started searching around, and black cops were a voice that we're not often heard about, and then survivors and, and other activists. And what I wanted to do was not put the journalist or the producer in the middle of this story. So these are first-person accounts, and they are very raw, very emotional, and these people actually went around. Every time they had an incident or a moment, they would record it. And so you get over a, a period of time their efforts and their struggles to chip away at a system, and you follow everything they do. You, you, it's a bizarre thing when you have this tape back. and I, they, they would send me this tape, and it would be like... I'm listening to their voices, their thoughts. I'm sharing those high moments, those low moments, those dilemma moments. It just—it was a great way of storytelling um, and, and getting more insight into this issue of police reform.
0: And those individual stories, they are so central to this entire thing. We hear voice memos, essentially people just talking to themselves. In the case of this black police officer that we'll hear in just a moment, it's before or after a tough shift. And so it is that really raw moment. I'm excited that we're going to get to listen to this episode. Joe, thank you for being here and stick around. We'll be back to talk with you more after the premiere episode of Systemic. Before we listen, a note, this contains content and language that might not be suitable for everyone. And listener, just Discretion is advised.
1: There's a quote I saw online, and it says the price one pays for pursuing any profession or calling is an intimate knowledge of its ugly side.
5: There was a time in Ray Brown's life when the idea of putting on a police uniform and a badge was just a dream. Now, four months on the job, her eyes are wide open.
1: It's really difficult to be like, in this position, you know, as a member of law enforcement, I'm aware of the origins of my institution and the pain associated with it for communities, right? I'm also Black, so of course I know the effects of it. I have experienced that when I'm not in that uniform. And if you're not doing what you took an oath to do, then people shouldn't respect you. I mean, like, sometimes I wish that people wouldn't, wouldn't put us on the pedestal. Like, if I do something wrong, then I have to be held accountable for that. I can't do something wrong. And then people say, oh, well, you're a cop, so I guess that's okay. That's a that's not a safe standard to practice.
5: It's been a turbulent year for police. Officer Derek Chavin's knee on George Floyd's neck told an old story of America's legacy of race and police. That moment represents a defining point in law enforcement. Does it stay on the same path, or can policing be reimagined? Do we defund and start over, or can change come from within? I'm Joe Erickson, a producer with Colorado Public Radio. I came to Colorado this past summer from Minneapolis, where I covered several police shootings, But after George Floyd's death in May 2020, something felt different. And his death now is used as a catalyst for radical changes to police culture. Last year, I decided I wanted to tell the story of the people taking matters into their own hands and pushing law enforcement to change. You are just not. A
2: regular cop. Oh, no, I ain't regular. By no means am I regular. You
5: got that right. <laughs> so I asked black officers and activists to record their part in history.
1: So I know it's been like a week. Had a long, strenuous uh, week this week. Going
5: through. Though their methods and ideas are different, they share a common goal. To change the system and to stop black people dying at the hands of police. Through audio diaries and interviews, you'll hear the hurt, the pain, and the sheer determination of a group of people who can no longer stay silent. The stories are raw and emotional.
6: One of the officers took a picture of our officer, and they were kind of spreading it around, like making comments about him, oh, you're black, you're not blue.
5: These are their stories, their voices.
6: Those police officers, I I guarantee you, they have families. They go home to their families. And Devon didn't go home that night. Devon didn't
5: even take another breath that night, all because of them. This is how it has to be for our voices to be heard. This is systemic a series that tells the stories of those who fight injustice as they attempt to dismantle the status quo. This season, we're focusing on police reform. Part 1. Black and Blue We begin by following two black police officers. One, a ten-year veteran from Colorado Springs.
4: This is not my first day being black. I've
5: been black. The other, a first-year rookie from the suburbs of Minneapolis and Saint Paul. All
4: right, so I'm just getting off shift. I'm just
7: hanging in there. I'm hanging in there.
5: Both have been impacted by the events of the last year, and we follow them as they resist the pressure to conform to police culture. It's September 2020. The 29-year-old police rookie, Ray Brown, has recently started as a patrol officer with Maplewood Police Department, a suburb of Minneapolis-St. Paul. This is not far from where Orlando Castile was pulled over in 2016 for a busted taillight and fatally shot by police from a nearby suburb.
6: You know, following the death of Philando Castile, I think that's really what set me over with wanting to be a police officer.
5: Ray saw herself as a person who could stop incidents like these from escalating. As a police officer, she believed she could make a difference and save a life.
6: So it was nice to just kind of be a part of something bigger. I worked as a family medical leave coordinator. Although I helped people, I just didn't feel like that was the the end goal for me and um, there's a lot of stigma with being a black person in law enforcement and I wanted to use this role as an opportunity to help kind of answer some of the questions that I had and potentially answer some of the questions that I know my peers have as well so far it's been pretty rewarding I've been a police officer for about a month now, it still doesn't feel real sometimes but um, so far so good
5: on the job officer ray brown is still adjusting to shift work being a cop isn't a nine-to-five job where you can kick back and relax with your friends and family officer ray loves what she does but the schedule can be punishing she records herself shortly after finishing her overnight shift
7: i'm exhausted i think I've been averaging maybe five hours, six hours of sleep a night, and I definitely can feel the way that the lack of sleep like shows up. It's very challenging at times, um, especially later in the night, to keep that same alertness, keep that same drive, but I'm figuring out uh, a sleeping pattern and what works for me. Uh, I went to work in a very good mood, <laughs> played Pharrell happy, I really tried to kind of set the tone for how I wanted my shift to
5: go. Being a black officer is difficult. They face huge barriers within law enforcement. They're often accused of having divided loyalties, where they must choose between being black or blue. But why should they choose? In reality, most black officers see their culture and their different life experiences as a positive step toward an inclusive police culture where communities of colour can identify with and begin to rebuild their trust in policing. Officer Brown responded to a 911 call about a domestic dispute.
7: I think the craziest thing tonight was uh, at a call poor- Interacting a with a juvenile, dispute between juvenile and mom, and what made it really unique is the topic of race, essentially, came up uh, for one of the first times, well, maybe the first time directly, it came up, um, juvenile is biracial, mom is not, and juvenile said that mom uses racial slurs when she yells at the juvenile, uh, which is crazy to me, it's so crazy.
5: While talking to the white mum, Ray realised she was expecting white officers to respond to the 911 call. She was not expecting a black woman.
7: And mom kind of pitched the whole like, oh, she didn't want to come and talk to the police. She feels that the police are racist. You know, she said that all of you, all y'all do is kill black people always interesting when you have someone that are, verbalizes these things and then you walk in as a black female and it's like i i'm not the white male that you thought was coming here
0: that's rookie officer ray brown and joe erickson producer and host of systemic it's a new podcast from cpr news that explores how people across the u.s are working to change police departments from outside and within Joe, police reform is culturally, socially, and a politically charged issue. What do you hope people take away when they listen to systemic?
5: I really feel like people, I want people to make up their own minds. You know, I want them to listen to their stories, hear their struggles, and get the insight of what their lives are like as they push for reforms. And then maybe that will help people picture their, what, they think police reform should be. And I'm trying to inform people's um, views on what is going on, but I'm not dictating, hey, you should think about it this way. It's mostly trying to give people information and then more, more emotional investment in this, in this issue.
0: Let's rejoin Systemic, hosted by Joe Erickson. A reminder, this episode contains strong language and situations.
2: So what I've been told is there are 100, at least 100 head of cows, uh, or cattle rather, in very poor condition, and we're likely going to seize those today.
5: On an October morning, Deputy Sheriff Michelle Reed responds to a 911 call. About 100 cattle are abandoned in a field in the eastern part of El Paso County, Colorado, near Colorado Springs. Deputy Sheriff Reed has worked in El Paso County's Sheriff Department for over a decade. She spent six years on patrol before moving to special operations. Reed is also a part of the mounted unit who work on horseback in rural parts of the county. It's why she's out here today with other officers from her unit, trying to figure out how to handle the stranded livestock. ...and
2: get hay, because I came down here and checked. Those cows have no hay. No, yeah. They have nothing.
7: I guess he said he came over the weekend and dropped some stuff off. Well, then they ate it. Oh,
2: they'll eat (laughs) it. Yeah. There's nothing else for them to eat. So, are these, these are the owners? That's the state Michelle joined the
5: police, almost in spite of her friends and family saying that she wouldn't be able to stick it out and that someone like her didn't fit the image of an officer. Her career in the mounted unit in rural El Paso County is a stark contrast from where she grew up in Houston, Texas. The closest she got to a horse was at the rodeo. But whenever you tell Michelle she can't do something, that's when she digs deep and proves you so, wrong.
2: You wrote any tickets lately, Mr. Burks? Not lately. <laughs> <laughs> like, last time?
5: You said, I'm going to write a ticket. I have. OK. We don't
6: do it very often.
5: It's hard not to notice that Michelle is the only black officer in the group wrestling with the cattle. National police data shows that 67% of police officers are white, and law enforcement as a whole is mostly men. In Michelle's department, she's one of the handful of officers that's not white. And she's the only black woman in El Paso County's mounted patrol.
2: When I came to the sheriff's office, I didn't know that they had a mounted unit. And I talked to one of the guys that worked in the jail and he had these cool looking swords on his uniform. And I was like, hey man, what are those? And he was like, These are cross sabers for the mounted unit. And I was like, the mounted? I was like, we have a mounted unit? Tell me more. And so he starts telling me all this stuff about the mounted unit. And before I knew it, I had talked to him for like probably a couple of hours. And I was like, I want to do that. I want to do that.
5: She's used to breaking down stereotypes of what a black officer can and can't do. And she's been doing it for years.
2: I have found that doesn't matter what community I go into, white, black, Latino, uh, affluent, a hood, doesn't matter where the place is, people just want you to treat them fairly and they want you to treat them with respect um, and talk to them like they're a human being just like you. You know, I do know that there are cops who are very condescending toward people and they do levy what I would say a heavy hand is on people you know because they they're like leaning more on their badge like I'm the police and so I can say what I want and I can do it loud and I can be rude and blah 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 but you know it's kind of like the old adage you can get more with sugar you know it's like I mean come on like hey I appreciate that you treated me like a person and my thing is and I got this from some other cop but I use it all the time and I tell people I said, I will treat you as nice as you let me. I've literally had people sitting in the back of my car. I'm taking them to jail. And they have motherfucked me up and down the street. And they get in the back of my car. Know they're going to jail. They haven't eaten lunch. They haven't had water. They haven't had a cigarette. And they'll be like, hey, hey, Deb, you got to... a a cigarette. I'm like, no, I don't smoke, but you know, I found these one day and somebody left them or you can have them. I give it, i say, Hey, you can smoke. If they're hungry, I've opened up my own lunch box and shared my lunch. So I treat people as nice as they let me, you know, if you want to be with me, then you don't get any courtesies. I'm not going to treat you bad, but I'm not gonna, you know, say, Oh, Hey, how, how can I help you? You know, I've gone into situations where I have to be a strong presence and I have to, you know, be an officer first. But at no time is it my intention or my practice to go out and make people feel like they're less than. I get a lot of people who don't want to engage with me because I'm a woman or because they've had negative experiences with the cops before. And I tell them, have you met me?
5: of changing how police culture reacts to situations involving people of colour also means changing how officers perceive black and brown people and over her 10 years Deputy Sheriff Reid has put it on herself to do that by slowly altering the perception of black officers with her white colleagues but she admits sometimes it's a struggle
2: being a law enforcement officer and in a profession that in and of itself invokes anxiety and concern, it's very tense every day, especially now. I have like the double whammy because on top of me being black, I'm a female. And, you know, in order for me to be equal to my male counterparts I have to do double the work if I go to the shooting range that when I shoot and we're practicing shooting our weapons that I can either outshoot or maintain the same accuracy of shooting as my male counterparts because if I don't there's going to be something said about how a woman is not capable of being as good as they are because I'm a woman they also talk about me being a, you know, um, black female. And if something happens that sparks a little, you know, emotion in me, I get the title is angry black woman, you know, so I have to go into work every day with all these things pressed down inside of me in the back of my head. And remember that if I want to be as good as them, I have to remember that if, if some of my emotion comes out explosively, that they think that I'm just an angry Black woman and when that's not really what it is.
5: We're
0: listening to Systemic, the new podcast from CPR News that explores how people across the U.S. are working to change police departments from the outside and within. When we come back, when a Black person is shot by police, how does it resonate for officers who are Black? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. As exhausting and overwhelming as it may sometimes be, I never question whether it is meaningful.
8: Public affairs editor Megan Verlee.
0: One of the great joys of my job is that the reporters I work with bring me stories they want to tell. And they're right. To be a part of helping bring the stories that they are passionate about to people, to bring these voices to people, is really meaningful work.
8: Listen for the work of the Colorado Public Radio Newsroom every day here on CPR News.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Cities like Denver, Aurora, and Colorado Springs are just a handful of the communities in the U.S. that are at the crossroads of police reform, from calls to defund police to changing what policing even means to begin with. Systemic is a new podcast from CPR News that explores this idea of reform. We're listening to the premiere episode today. A reminder, it contains content and language that might not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Here again is host Joe Erickson.
5: In December 2020, news was breaking.
8: Our top story tonight, we are learning some new details involving the fatal shooting following a Minneapolis police traffic stop this week.
5: The Minneapolis Police Department shot yet another black man.
8: Seeing the body camera footage that Minneapolis police say shows 23-year-old Dalal Id shooting first before officers shot and killed him is enough information to end the conversation. For some others, more context is still needed.
5: This was the first police shooting since George Floyd's death.
8: This particular incident isn't happening in a vacuum. Former Hennepin County Chief Public Defender Mary Moriarty says because of low public trust in MPD right now, especially after the May death of George Floyd, people want as much information as possible rather than relying on evaluations from anyone on whether what happened was right. What do you mean when you're saying it was a felony stop? What do you mean he was a felony suspect? What does that mean?
5: That night, Before her shift, rookie officer Ray took a moment to reflect, and she talked about how it feels to be a black officer when these incidents happen.
6: All right, so I'm in my car, just running errands before um, work tonight, back on another rotation tonight. just wanted to take a moment to kind of reflect on the shooting of the Somali gentleman in um, Minneapolis PD. Um, I did watch some of the body cam footage. I don't really watch that stuff. Um, I try not to watch that stuff just because I don't... I mean, I think it makes me numb to death. And it makes me... It kind of, like, makes me detached. And I really don't want to be that person. So, like, I don't work for Minneapolis PD. I work in a suburb in a completely different county. However, people talk about the things that happen in the cities. And they, you know, those same behaviors and thoughts and characteristics echo in with the people that I police right I think moments like this is just frustrating you hear the first hear about the incident and then everyone is screaming justice you have some people that are like wait you know let's see the police video let's see what actually happened and then you have some people that are blindly like oh screw the police you guys did this y'all killed him and they find fault no matter what that shooting in particular was extremely frustrating just because of some of the comments that I saw from people that are in my friends list on Facebook. There's people that were like oh well if you're a police officer and you're scared of people shooting at you then you need to get a new job. Quit being scary. Quit hiring scary cops. It just seems like common sense goes out the window. Rationale. It's, um, it's frustrating. It's really frustrating. I have seen more killer cops memes and comments in the last few days than I would like. And then it always puts you in that place, like, okay, do I remove these people from my Facebook so that I don't see these things? But then that only surrounds me with people who support or who are pro-law enforcement, And it's really hard. Like, I wish I could find more people who could see it from different sides. I don't support. Like, I am not blindly pro anything. Right. Like, I don't think that police officers are perfect. I don't think that we never make a mistake. I don't think that we're always right in everything that we do. I 100 percent don't think that because I've worked with people and I've seen it. But at the same time, I'm not blindly following people who think that everything that a police officer does is wrong and that it should be second-guessed every single time. So I wish that there was, like, somewhere to find, like, a medium that says, could this have probably been done differently?
5: Being both Black and in law enforcement, Ray has found it difficult to navigate conversations at work around Black death
6: I feel like it's rare to find someone who you can talk about with those things. Like, talking to other cops tends to be frustrating because they're more likely pro-cop. It's very rare to find someone who's like, yeah, man, that look bad, or, you know what I mean? So, or maybe it's rare for me because I'm a new officer. Um. ¶¶
5: It's November 2020 in Colorado Springs, and the election is right around the corner. Just days before voters go to the polls, law enforcement across the nation are responding to increased volumes of 911 calls about political disputes. Even in remote areas of El Paso County, Deputy Sheriff Michelle Reed cannot escape politics.
2: It's just been very tense. And I <laughs> remember being on patrol one day and looking at our board from my computer. And the board is just a list of calls that are ready for officers to respond to. And there was one and it was, it was funny, but it wasn't funny. So a neighbor called in on another neighbor, uh, accusing the other of stealing their Trump signs. And this person that called in had no evidence, no proof that their neighbor had stole the signs. And the only other comments that were associated with this police call for service was that this neighbor who called in was Caucasian and the person that they were having problems with was black. And they just decided that they had issues with their black neighbor because their Trump signs were now missing. And so they assumed that it was a black neighbor. It's funny and not funny. And something else that was really striking to me was that all of this information is being recorded in our computer database and it now is a record. It's part of history. It's part of our history as the sheriff's office and the things that we were responding to or got called to respond to. And it just seems so stupid. But the the fact of the matter is, sometimes we go out as police officers and we're dealing with what, what I would say uh, just stupid shit. And it's things that people could potentially solve themselves, but they are so self-absorbed and so mighty and high and pious that they don't think that they can go out and talk to their neighbor that lives right next door to them. And it's just, So sad to me that we have been driven to this line which basically boils down to um, race or political views. So um, it's just, it's tough sometimes.
5: It's January 2021 and the nation remains divided. Deputy Sheriff Reed expresses her concerns about how the mood of the country would affect her job.
4: Today is January the 7th and I did have hope until all of these, I'm just going to call them stupid people, idiots, stormed the Capitol as if the election was not valid. It's just, it's so, it's embarrassing. It's disheartening. It's just unbelievable. But what do you do? I'm just a little concerned about what's gonna happen when I go out into the rural areas of Eastern El Paso County, where I've been seeing the Trump flag still waving in everybody's yard, still hanging on the mailboxes, flying on the fences. And I just, I don't know what's gonna happen. I don't know how people are gonna respond to me being out there. So I just have to hope that things are gonna go well,
5: Months into her new career, Officer Ray Brown already experienced a lot in the line of duty, but there are still firsts for every officer. For Ray, today would be her first time responding to a 911 call of shots fired. It was the first time she felt herself in a position where she may have to use her weapon, and it gave her a new perspective on what it feels like to make decisions when lives, her own, and others are on the line.
7: All right, so I am driving home now. I just got off work. Um, probably sounds like I'm in the car. Oh, the audio's not too crazy. Today was wild. The last few moments of my day were wild. Um, we got report of uh, shots fired, multiple gunshots. They came out over dispatch that that through secondhand information there was a shots fired at the mall by like a transit station and wow wow is all I can say um I don't think I've ever moved so fast getting to my squad car I don't think I've ever seen the the look that my partners had the look that I'm sure I had. On what are we about to walk into? It was really just, wow. It was really an adrenaline rush. There's so many emotions that go through your head in that moment. It's so wild. Like, you get the call, and your brain immediately goes to a hundred different things in one moment. What's the quickest way to get there? How to get there quickly and safely? is there one shooter? Are there multiple shooters? Is there, you know, victims? It's a mall. Is it an active shooter situation? Am I going to end up in the news today? Am I not going to end up coming home today? Like it's so, I'm like, I'm still jittery. You, it, you could probably hear it in my voice. My heart, I can still feel my heart beat kind of racing a little bit Thankfully, that it was a unfounded. There were people in the area who said they hadn't heard a thing, and we we were able fairly quickly to confirm that an incident had not occurred. But wow, what a way to end your shift! It's very, very telling. Like it's just an emotional roller coaster, is what it feels like—an emotional roller coaster.
5: Ray's stress and emotions around this call shows how any officer might get overwhelmed or lost in the moment when a call comes in and the adrenaline starts pumping. Ray is still wired to respond as a black person first, officer second. And maybe this is the sort of thinking policing needs right now this moment when america grapples with its legacy of racial discrimination and police violence ray and michelle are a force of moderation precisely because they walk on the tightrope between black and blue michelle's gift for treating people kindly even after she arrests them and ray's ability to have both pro police and anti police friends might just resolve the crisis or save a life and both see opportunities to change the culture of policing.
1: I don't think that all cops are bad but I think to say that oh we recognize that there's biases and problems in society but somehow these hundreds of people in this one occupation are free from these biases like it's foolish to believe that way. And I think sometimes people forget that, especially when you talk about like the Blue Lives Matter movement and, oh, we should respect the police. Like we should respect good people. And I think that that's a reality that like people need to kind of understand. Like if I do something wrong, then I have to be held accountable for that.
2: Well, if I was able to change something, it would just be to have more diversity with people who are out actually on the streets. And when I say on the streets, like, more officers of color just out and about doing work, the same work that I do.
5: The work that Officer Brown and Deputy Sheriff Reed are doing to challenge stereotypes and show white officers how to relate to diverse communities is important. But these efforts are only chipping away at a system That, so far, has resisted change.
0: Joe Erickson and Systemic, the new podcast from CPR News that explores how people across the U.S. are working to change police departments from the outside and within. And Joe is back with us now. Hi, Joe. Hi. These two officers, they really opened up. What struck you about how candid they were, especially in this time of ongoing unrest?
5: I think I think I was I was absolutely I have to say, first of all, these individuals were incredibly brave to do what they did. Um, not many people would be open to um taping and recording everything they did. so that and I'm immensely grateful to them and what they achieved. So I think, no, it, it, it's, it's like when I, these, these characters are the, they're saying so much and they're giving so much personal um, information about what it's like to be them and their struggles. And I feel that their the journey is take. you know, we're, we're all traveling with them on this journey. And as they struggle and they chip away at trying to encourage other white officers to be more like them or to uh, encourage us to understand what it's like to be black and be a black police officer. Um, I, I just i am amazed that I got so much access to them and the tape and the material that they gave me. I was just deeply grateful and in awe of them. Um, yeah.
0: And you really wanted to make sure that it was people telling their own stories, not only for this episode, but for the rest of the podcast. Why is that so important to you?
5: So this is a four-part series, and each of the the episodes have different characters, and each of them are told in the first-person narrative, and they they all tackle this issue in various different ways. And um, the reason why I wanted that, that their personal voices, their stories, is... A, most of the time they're left out of this national conversation on police reform. So I'm putting them back in that so that we can understand the whole picture, the 360 picture of what police reform actually means to everybody involved in it. But also, it's they have a greater insight than anyone else because they're right front and centre, right in the middle of this this issue. And so to have them... Push the, to have them tell their story is is um, is essential, uh, just so that we can understand what police reform actually means.
0: And this was the premiere. Like you said, there are four parts to this. Just briefly, in about the thirty seconds we have left, what can we expect
5: next? The next episode, you're going to hear uh, the voices of a of a young man who uh, witnessed his cousin being killed by the police, and you're going to follow his story from his point of view. It's raw, it's personal, and he takes us on a very intimate journey.
0: These are important stories. Joe, thank you for being here and for sharing your work on Systemic.
5: Hey, thank you so much. Joe
0: Erickson is a producer and host of Systemic, the new podcast from CPR News that explores policing from the inside and the outside. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Evictions during the pandemic have been relatively rare in Colorado, thanks to various protections for renters. But that may change in the months ahead, and that means landlords and tenants are trying to figure things out. Here are CPRs Andrew Kenny and Haley Sanchez.
8: Lamont Clifton is two months behind on rent. His part-time jobs have been up and down throughout the pandemic, and he's struggling to get unemployment benefits.
3: You have more sleepless nights because you're, you're more stressed out about it if you're going to be able to pay your rent. Be able to get food,
8: but there's one thing he's not worried about his landlord in Aurora. He pays what he can when he can, and that's okay with her.
3: She's really been awesome with working with me and and me, you know, just communication thing. you know, and I tell her what's going on, and she's like, okay, and she's a good landlord i I just love her to death. His landlord is Gail Steger-Mock. She's been in the business for 35 years, and she sees what she does as a service for others.
0: You know, you get to help them have a decent place to live. And that's where I come from. I am not a slum landlord. I don't believe in it. About a third
8: of her renters have fallen behind during the pandemic. And that means she's had to cut back. Standing outside her fourplex where Clifton lives, she points out all the updates she's delayed.
0: That would be landscaping, that would be fencing, that would be exterior stuff. Um, I need to power wash my building and that's expensive, so (laughs) I'm putting that off pretty much.
3: A year into the pandemic, a lot of landlords and tenants are in situations like this, with rent and bills piling up. A federal eviction moratorium has kept many people housed, but it could expire soon.
8: That means landlords, especially the smaller ones, will have to decide. Keep working with tenants who owe them money or tell them they have to go. steger says she hopes not to evict anyone. I've
0: decided to just hang, hang in here and wait it out <laughs> for the most
3: part. steger is relying on savings for now, but she says landlords still have mortgages they have to pay.
0: If we go out of business as landlords, there will be no place for people to rent. And you talk about rents you know, rising up. They will. A
8: census survey suggests that some 80,000 Colorado households may be behind on rent. Early in the pandemic, housing advocates warned of a tsunami of evictions. Now, after a year of unprecedented government intervention, they say that singular doomsday event is looking less likely.
3: But the transition back to normal rules could be a rough time for many. Zach Newman is an attorney working with the COVID-19 Eviction Defense Project. He says renters are in a race right now to work out deals with their landlords before pandemic protections lapse. They need time, money, and lawyers.
7: What we see with clients who have both legal representation and access to funds is that those clients are able to negotiate a new lease. They're able to extend their
8: housing. There are funds available. The state has hundreds of millions of dollars earmarked for rental assistance. So far, more than 54,000 people have applied. But half of those requests are still pending. That money can take more than a month to reach people's pockets. steger Mock has applied and is still waiting, which is straining her
0: budget. I have no idea. The paperwork is in, but I haven't seen a thing. And I check my mail and check my web account and try to see if they're going to pay, but they don't give you any word. If they pay you, it just shows up.
3: Housing advocates say that those delays could endanger renters. If the money doesn't get there before the moratorium lifts, some landlords could move to evict instead of waiting. Advocates are backing a bill at the legislature that would make evictions harder, and Newman says that in the meantime, the state should ensure current eviction protections are extended to give renters more time.
7: The numbers still aren't great, but they're a lot better than they were a few months ago, and I think if we can just maintain these policies and this funding for uh, another several months, we can take another look at the data. And I think the world's going to look much different and hopefully much better.
8: But landlord groups say that it's time for things to get back to normal. They say that small property owners are suffering. And when it comes to evictions, they're a last resort, just something they need for the most problematic tenants.
4: If we can get back to normal,
8: the rules as they stand, are fairly reasonable. Peter Meir owns and runs rental properties in Metro Denver. You can't just kick people out. you got to
4: go through the court process. It's unfortunate, but it's orderly, and people are treated fairly in the courtroom, both the property manager for the owner and the tenants.
3: But when renters and landlords don't have a good relationship, the future can look pretty scary. Well, I've never
0: been evicted. I don't even know what that's like, but...
3: But that's exactly what Diana Vassar of Salida is facing. Vassar, who's 76, has been unemployed since the start of the pandemic. She says her landlord has told her that he's going to raise her rent, and she can't afford it.
0: And I said, so I, I really need to get you to agree to let me stay an extra month or two because I don't have any place to go. I've been a good renter, never been late, never missed. I know, I know. And I said, you know... All this time, I said, I really need to give me a break here. And he wouldn't answer me.
3: Besser her rents month to month. That means she isn't covered by the federal eviction moratorium. Renters like her were previously covered by the state's moratorium, but that's long gone. She's trying to find somewhere to go, and it isn't easy.
1: So I look all the time for a place to live. I've got my name on the list in Colorado
0: Springs um, or different places, but there's some of them don't even have their waiting lists open now because they have so many sending them applications.
8: After surviving a year of the pandemic, Vassar isn't sure what comes next. It's the same uncertainty a lot of renters and landlords find themselves in. After a year of pandemic disruption, another transition is coming. But no one quite knows
0: yet what it'll look like or how it'll go. I'm Haley Sanchez.
3: And I'm Andrew Kenny. CPR News.
0: Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team.
3: Carl Bielick.
5: Allie Butner.
3: Anthony Cotton.
5: Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher.
3: Matt hers Michael Hughes.
5: Carla Jimenez.
3: Pedro Lumbrano.
0: Patrice Mondragon.
3: Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner.
0: And special thanks to Joe Erickson and the systemic team, Dennis Funk, Rebecca Romberg, Daniel Mesher. Brad Turner and Kevin Dale. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.